Sometimes we don't know just what to do when adversity takes over. <laughs> and uh, I have advice for all of us. I got it from our pianist, Joe Zabidu, who wrote this tune. And it sounds like what you're supposed to say when you have that kind of problem. It's called mercy. Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and welcome to You, Me, Us, Now. And first of all, I must start with an apology. To start, Cannonball Adderley, mercy, 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 and not let you hear it through to the finish is really just a crime against against musical humanity. We sh- Listen to it at home, folks. It's an awesome tune. So You, Me, Us, Now is a show about people who try to change things, people who look at the world and say it ought to be different. And I love to bring them on and ask folks how they got involved, what what moved them to get involved, and what they're working on. And this week's guest is Alex Lenferna. And I met Alex when I went out to the University of Washington. I was requested by them to speak to the folks there that were working on divestment of fossil fuels by the University of Washington, which is a very major a research institution in the United States and has a substantial amount of money that it in, that it invests. And I had previously announced as mayor of Seattle that Seattle would begin the process of divestment. And we were following the call of Bill McKibben of 350, who had launched a tour in Seattle called the Do the Math Tour that that called on people to do that. So I got to meet Alex in that process. And we're going to talk a little bit about the UW divestment process. We're also going to talk about his help with a campaign to ask the Gates Foundation here in Seattle to divest. And that was part of the reasoning behind the song choice at the beginning. You know, one is if the Gates Foundation is about anything, it's about mercy, right? That there's all these horrible things in the world going on in disease and poverty and inequity. And Bill Gates, to his credit, has put his money where his mouth is and is taking his wealth and devoting it to make the world a better place. Uh, The other part of the song, though, is that when adversity hits, you don't know what to do. How do you deal with it? And part of the logic behind the Gates Foundation campaign um, that has been launched internationally and in which people locally are going to be working on, including Alex, is the idea that now is a moment of, of truth, so to speak, in the climate movement. And some of the things we've done in the past haven't worked anymore, and it's time to take a, a stronger moral stand. So anyway, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But Alex Lenferna, I told you I met him at the UW. He's um, from South Africa. He's at the University of Washington getting a Ph.D. in philosophy, but his focus is on climate justice. I discovered he's a really smart guy. He's uh, one of the uh, Mandela Rhodes Scholars from the country of South Africa. Thirty people annually are chosen in the African continent to receive such a scholarship. And he was, in fact, active and engaged with climate issues in, in South Africa, where he grew up and went to school and got his master's degree. How was that, Alex? Did I miss anything big? No, I think you pretty much covered my life story. We can just go on and discuss the Gates Foundation stuff. (laughs) Well, I do want to talk just a little bit about some of the things you did. And I mentioned, um, and you handle praise very well, me calling you a smart guy. You mentioned that earlier today we were talking, and you mentioned that you had helped launch climate action in in South Africa. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure thing. So... You know, when we look at uh, a lot of the youth engagement in South Africa, engaging with climate issues is something that's 
pretty new to us, I think. Um, you know, there's other urgent priorities which are often given precedence in the sort of youth advocacy that we're doing. So back in South Africa, I was working on, you know, poverty issues and global justice. And then I realized the sort of deep interconnection that climate change has to global poverty and to some of the challenges we're facing in South Africa. So working together with a few friends, a few people from my university, which is Rhodes University back in South Africa, although there's a big movement now to change the name from Rhodes University to something a little less colonial. Um, but this is where we sort of started a lot of the student advocacy. We're thinking climate change is a really serious problem um, that is going to face the African continent in South Africa. Um, and so we started to really push on that, and we developed uh, a student movement that started at Rhodes University but started to spread to universities across the Eastern Cape and South Africa, and then we developed a um, organization which started to bring together youth from across Southern Africa to start to work on these issues. Um, and we did a number of different campaigns. What did you work on? What campaigns did you work on as part of that coalition? Yes, there was quite a bit we did. One was one major campaign was pushing for a carbon tax in South Africa, so putting a price on carbon pollution which causes climate change. Um, and we pushed the South African government to, to enact that and to try to do so in an equitable way. Um, and it seems like some of our pressure was hopefully um, successful, or at least it had some influence because the South African government will be putting in place a carbon tax in 2016, which is great to see. We did some work on issues like hydraulic fracturing or fracking, um, trying to ensure that uh, you know it wasn't just done willy-nilly in South Africa without properly thinking through the implications um, it has for water and local pollution and climate and so on. So we pushed back against companies like Shell who were trying to push into very water-scarce areas to just go ahead with fracking, which of course is very water-intensive very polluting um, way of getting gas out of the ground. And we did a bunch of locally-based advocacy work, working with communities to to look at issues of sort of ecological resilience, how do we create more uh, strong communities in the face of climate change. So we did a range of different things. Um, and, you know, as students, I think we're starting to see that this is a really important issue that we needed to engage with. And so I think that was really the exciting beginnings of student advocacy on climate change issues in South Africa, and it's, it's growing. Well, it's fascinating that you're getting a PhD in philosophy, mm-hmm. but with a focus on climate justice. Yeah. Describe that for me. Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, when you, when you tell them that you're a philosopher, they expect you to have your head in the clouds in some ways, but not in the climate justice type of ways. So it's not the usual connection that people make. But when we think about climate change, the the way that I got into this issue was I was thinking about global poverty initially and uh, global justice and the sort of responsibilities we have to people that are not as fortunate to us uh, as us. And that initially led me to, to, to realize that climate change itself is one of the biggest challenges we face when it comes to global poverty and sustainable development and ensuring that we can lift people out of, uh, out of poverty because... You know, there's reports out there like the UN uh, Development Report which suggests that climate change could knock back 3 billion people into poverty by 2050 if we don't get under wraps. And so when we think about climate change, where philosophy comes into that is it's a deeply moral, it's a deeply ethical question because of the responsibilities we have to other people that are less fortunate than us, but also the responsibilities we have given that, especially people in the developing world, in the developed world, uh, people that are rich, uh, people that have access to a lot of resources are often the predominant causes of this problem. Um, and often the people that are going to get impact the hardest are those that have least contributed to it and that are most vulnerable, right? So there's this deeply moral question about how, what sort of responsibilities we have to them. And philosophy 
is important because it allows us to analyze those moral relationships and really bring that to the forefront. And also thinking about moral relationships to future generations, what do we owe them? Um, and how do we deal with these deep intersections between various different questions of justice, like racial justice, climate justice, and intergenerational justice, kind of all come together in the climate issue. So philosophy provides some of the tools to help engage on those issues. So you, your head is not in the clouds, or maybe it is in the clouds, but every <laughs> once in a while you put your feet in your, on the ground and, your, and your, you know, your hands into action. Um, one of the things you worked on was getting the University of Washington to divest from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that campaign. Uh, what were the challenges of it and, and how it worked out? Yeah, so that was a really exciting campaign here at, at the University of Washington. You know, getting to work with really uh, committed young people that what, what they recognized was that the, the way that we're dealing with climate change now and where we are with the climate issue is just, it's deeply inadequate. And there's a lot of powerful players who aren't properly standing up and recognizing the urgency of the issue, right? And so we recognized that the University of Washington as a really influential institution had an important role to play in making a moral statement on this. And we looked at sort of the math behind climate change, looking at the idea that fossil fuel companies have far far too many reserves, up to five times more reserves than we can afford to burn if we want to keep climate change to that two-degree target that the world's agreed to. And we saw that the university was using its money, and the university proclaimed to be this leader in sustainability, but at the same time it was using its money to invest in fossil fuel companies, uh, many of whom, especially coal companies, were very much out of line with what it meant to have a safe uh, climate. And so this seems like a contradiction to us, right? If If you, on one hand, as an institution, want to profess to sustainability, you're committed to keeping the world safe and habitable, but on the other hand, you're investing in companies who not only are their reserves more than we can afford to burn, but they're spreading misinformation, they're clouding the political process, they're preventing progress, right? And they're also undermining a lot of the products of the university itself because they sow misinformation, right? And the university is about shedding light and bringing knowledge to bear, whereas they were funding companies that were doing the opposite. And so we really focused in on that contradiction and we pushed the university to remove its investments, particularly from thermal coal. That's because it's the most harming, the most polluting. Um, But of course, there's a case for broader divestment too. It was also, we're trying to get them to take baby steps as we move forward. Um, But at the time, we were the biggest public university to divest and the richest public institution to do so too. Just a week later, though, both of those records had been broken, (laughs) which is a great indication of the power of the divestment movement. But at the time, we, we really made a big step forward. And it took a lot of time and effort to do it. This was a sort of a process. How long was the campaign? It was three years before we actually got that victory. And how, um, did, how did you get personally involved in the campaign? You know, when I initially came to, to Seattle, I was looking around and I was thinking, okay, what are some of the most important ways that I can contribute to climate change issues? And there was some stuff that I'm doing. Like I'm working on a campaign to put a price on carbon pollution. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, but at the same time, what I saw when I was looking around the American political landscape is that a lot of the ways that we would normally bring about legislation on climate change are blocked because of political corruption, because of the power of the fossil fuel industry. Right? I thought, what is one of the strong ways that we can fight back against that? And divestments, because of the history we have of divestment in apartheid South Africa and how that helped fight back against really powerful political forces and to help shift norms, I thought this was a really important way that we can use the power of an really credible institution like the University of Washington to bring up, to really show the moral nature of this issue and to fight back against a lot of that 
political obstacles which were breaking what should normally be sensical responses to climate change that our governments and that our community should be able to bring about because we have the answers to move towards clean energy to create a more just future, right? And they're, they're really there. We can do it, right? And we can create a much, much better world. But we need to break that political roadblock and we need to take the power back ourselves if we're going to be able to do that. And so divestment was one of the tools that I thought was powerful in that. So were people already working on it or how did you find other people interested in this? Yeah, so there was some people already working on it. Um, they had started like the beginnings of the divestment campaign um, and there were some discussions going on with the Treasury at the University of Washington um, and they were trying to offer us, uh, they offered us some victories that we got early on where we co-sponsored with them, things like investing in clean energy, doing shareholder engagement with fossil fuel companies, um, doing some environmental social governance principles in their investments, which were all good positive steps forward, but they hadn't, they weren't willing to commit to divestment yet. So what were the tactics that the campaign used? So, mm-hmm. and, and part of the reason I'm asking these questions is I'm, I'm hopeful other people are listening who are saying, hey, I, I want to be engaged in changing this, but mm-hmm. you know, what does it take? It takes quite a bit. So you no, know, one of the now, things- Now, come on, don't discourage people here, Alex. We need you to, it was easy, right? It was really easy, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much you just ask and they give, give it, it to you. you. So that's no, the, it never works that way. So yeah. what were the specific tactics then? Back to the question. Yeah, so we we did a range of different tactics. We organized rallies. Um, we, you know, we would be out in the square, you know, showing- uh, bringing students together, organizing the power of our voices that we could rally around this issue. Um, we organized teachers. We brought students in. We're teaching them about this important issue, getting them engaged. You know, we did the usual getting petitions and so on too. We'd go to all the Board of Regents meetings and we would talk about it. We'd never let them forget that we were there, right? And we'd remind them about the contradiction involved in their investment policies. Um, and we really had some powerful voices in our campaign as well that were willing to speak to power, that were willing to push back against... It was often a, a somewhat slow bureaucratic process that we had to keep on pushing back against. Um, and we had some people within the administration that were helpful and willing to engage with us. But at the same time, we also had to keep on pushing in order to get there. And so we had a lot of we had a lot of rallies. We had a lot of calling out the administration for not acting fast enough. We did a lot of research. We sent out reports on this issue to all the, the main players. We did a lot of education of the administration, of the students, of the faculty. Got a lot of work bringing them on board behind us, um, getting statements in favor. How many people were involved in the campaign, kind of in core leadership roles? People who just stuck with it and did yeah. work week after week, month after month? Yeah, and so this is the thing is that I think sometimes these campaigns punch above their weight. Um, they, they appear on the outside to be much bigger than they are on the inside. Um, there was probably a core group of about 10 of us that really stuck to it and worked together. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of people who were on the outskirts that were really supportive of us. We had community members and groups. And, you know, when we put the call out there, they would come to a rally and they would get involved. But, you know, the people that were sitting week to week within that room planning, thinking like, how do we do this? Putting the research together, organizing the campaigns, spending nights being frustrated on the issue. But in the end, making progress it was about 10 of us, you know. And did you find that process personally rewarding? It was. You know, I think the the relationships that you make with people when you're fighting for something that you really believe in um, and something that is really deeply important to you, I think that's some of the strongest bonds that you can make and the the meaning that comes from those processes of engaging and trying to make the world a better place um, and in the end being successful too. Um, 
that that was really deeply rewarding. There, you know, part of part of my goal in this show is mm-hmm. is to talk not just about the issues, but about about organizing yeah. generally. And in fact, the name of the show, "You, Me, Us, Now," is borrowed from a a guy by the name of Marshall Gantz, who's a researcher on organizing and was an organizer for Cesar Chavez. He's now at Harvard. And listeners may have heard me talk about Marshall Gantz before. Google him, learn about him. That is one of the things he talks about. It's those personal connections and the relationships one builds that keeps people coming back. But there's a couple of other lessons I hear from this. One is that there were 10 people and they were mostly students, theoretically powerless in a society that values status and money. But there were sources of power that you identified, right? And one source of power was the power of ideas. Another source was the power of of just collective voices Mm -hmm. speaking up. And I think there's another one, which is I think students occupy a special place. We see it in many societies, but even here, of uh, oftentimes not being very intimidated by power because they just want to see the right thing done. And nobody can accuse a student of uh, self-serving motivations. And usually they can. They can try, but usually they can. Yeah. The other thing I've noticed is the huge generational divide on the issue of climate change. It's yeah. To me, it feels like among the younger generations, it's almost uniform that we have to do something and we have to do mm-hmm. something immediately. Is that your experience as well? When you look across the globe, you know, young people, they understand this issue and they know that it's their future that's on the line, right? And I think that also gives us a special uh, moral salience in this discussion is that when we think about those who are going to be affected, it's often us. Um, and, you know, whenever I speak to other students, they know, I mean, they're frustrated. Especially people that are engaged in this issue. They've looked at the older generation spending time in stale UN conferences, not really making significant progress um, or passing really weak legislation. And uh, I think there is this sense within the young generation that there just isn't enough being done and that, there isn't a sense of urgency amongst the older generation, all the people in power, right? I think this is where divestment comes from. Is that I think amongst a lot of young people, there's a sense of frustration. There's a sense that we need to do something radical and different, and we need to push back against the power structures that aren't taking this seriously. Um, so, yeah, I think this is why you're seeing the divestment movement really taken off. And I, that's another thing. So even though it was just 10 people in the room, it was also us being part of this broader movement where we've got students rising up across the country and hundreds of different campuses across not only the US, but across the world in Australia, in South Africa, in Europe. And so what we're seeing is an uprising here of students, of young people that are fed up with the status quo and that are building this sort of global collective power and are saying that we need to stop investing in more fossil fuels and we need to start investing in a better future and do away with the status quo, which is really leading us down a treacherous path if we continue this way. So let's talk a little bit about that. We've gotten, we've gotten into why divestment. Mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of people will say that's not really the problem, mm-hmm. right? The issue is people need to consume less oil. They need to drive mm-hmm. less, fly less, you know, put up solar powers, use wind. Mm-hmm. And some people saying we're not going to invest in fossil fuel companies isn't going to change anything. Why, mm-hmm. why divestment as a tactic as opposed to, say, mm-hmm. radically changing consumption patterns in the United States. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a that's an objection that often comes up in these spaces. Um, and I think we've been trained uh, through somewhat individualistic uh, mindsets and also through fossil fuel industry PR that what we've got to focus on is consumption. We've got to focus on individual efforts because it's not about a structural injustice. It's not about broader political processes that are going on, right? 
So often we do think about that. And I, consumption is important, right? We need to reduce our consumption. But when we think about what it means to take the sort of broader societal shifts that we need to make, the broader policies, the broader ways that we organize society, these are collective decisions. These are ones that require political power. Places where we need to make these really big decisions are blocked, right? And so divestment pushes back against that. And it also exposes something really interesting in the financial world too, is that our investments are not doing clever things right now. We're pouring a billions of, hundreds of billions every year into developing new fossil fuel reserves, which if we are to act within our internationally agreed targets, should not be spent at all, right? And so it draws attention to this really reckless investment process, right? And I think that's having ramifications on the financial markets. Um, so we have both these financial impacts where people are beginning to realize that this potential carbon bubble, the bu bubble on, on the markets because of these overvalued fossil fuel reserves and us spending too much money there. So on one hand, we're challenging the political space and we're trying to open up the space where we can make the necessary decisions. And we're also calling out the really destructive practices that are happening and the, the really bad way that we're investing our money. And often people that and institutions which claim to be really yeah. uh, forward thinking on these issues. Right? Bill McKibben was coming to Seattle for the do the to kick off his do the math tour, right. and I had read the article. And for those that haven't, you should. It's really very straightforward, mm -hmm. which is the scientists tell us that we can burn a certain amount of fossil fuels. At some point, if you burn beyond that, we're heading into the catastrophic realms. The world's known reserves are about five times as much as we can burn. So that means about 80% of the fossil fuels have to stay in the ground. We had a stakeholder committee that was working to update our climate action plan. And I, I'd heard of divestment. I was a little skeptical. Bill spoke to the committee, and I got it. And that was part of the reason I asked that question was I, I'd spent years focusing on the consumption side as an advocate. And I'd always felt like there was this block that individuals had, right? Like we're guilty. Like we're complicit in this. And when you're complicit in something and you're guilty of something, you may not want to look at it closely. You may want to look away. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable to look at it. And this was, to me, divestment clicked because it was, no, we're actually going to answer the question, should fossil fuels remain in the ground or not? And if they should remain in the ground, if we shouldn't burn them, then we certainly shouldn't invest in companies that want to do just that, right? That this was a kind of a game-changing observation. At least for me, it was game-changing. So I, I committed Seattle to start going down that path and began volunteering with, with whoever else would ask. I do think that it's, a, it's about changing norms. And you had mentioned, you would use that phrase in talking about South Africa, the normative effect in South Africa of a South African divestment campaign. I think we often don't recognize the power that ideas and norms play in shifting the way that our society moves forward. Um, and that a shift in norms can really help to change the trajectory that we're on. And so, you know, the fossil fuel industry puts a lot of money into developing certain norms around their business model being sort of inevitable that we're going to stay on that path, right? And that it's for the good of us and so on. And so there's this, this norm where we just sort of buy into that. That seems to be the normal route, the business as usual that we're going on, right? And we I, need fossil fuels to right. get around. We need fossil fuels to heat our home. Yeah. And that's normal. That is. And that's just the way things have to be. Yeah. But the thing is, we can shift that, right? And right. The, the divestment movement is never saying like, okay, let's get off fossil fuels overnight. Um, and we're just going to cut everybody's fossil fuel supplies and we're done, right? It's about a recognition that we can shift rapidly. And that rapid shift is not necessarily going to end with us going back and living in caves. Because a lot of people like to make these exaggerated cases. 
we really have a lot of technological and societal innovations which should move us to a much better place quickly if we as society are willing to act. So there was a, a study done at Stanford University and suggested we have everything we need. The, the obstacles are not economic or technological. The obstacles are political and societal, right? And so if we can recognize that we can see a different future, we can tell a different story about what our future will look like. And that's what students are trying to do is to say, look, this is a different story. The fossil fuel industry is selling you a story, a self-serving story, so that they can burn their reserves. But we can challenge that and we can create a better future. And we want the, the universities, the institutions that we're part of, and big institutions like the Gates Foundation, who's supposed to be telling us a story about giving every individual an opportunity to have a better life, we want them to tell a different story and to invest into a different narrative because otherwise they lock us into a future which is going to condemn a lot of us to, yeah, I think we know that that's, that's a pretty awful future. Yeah. yeah, we don't often dwell on what the effects are of climate change because it is so, in fact, so scary. But, you know, in the, the phrase that Bill McKibben used when he met with us was we need to withdraw the social license of the fossil fuel companies to operate. And that was a that was a change in attitudes before you could get to a change in behavior. And I immediately thought of of smoking. In fact, the conference room that my stakeholder committee and Bill McKibben was meeting in, you know, thirty or forty years earlier, would have had ashtrays on all the tables. Mm-hmm. And if you had said to them, um, "Oh, by the way, there will be no ashtray here, and if you want to smoke a cigarette, you have to go walk outside the door and go at least twenty five feet before you can smoke it." People would have laughed at me because everybody knows that, you know, conference rooms have ashtrays and people smoke in meetings Mm -hmm. and restaurants and bars and everything. And in fact, that norm changing has led to dramatic effects on smoking rates in the United States. And I I think it's what the fossil fuel companies fear the most Mm -hmm. is this idea that, that fossil fuels are something that we're, you know, destined to use because that's the way the world works to one in which we say, no, we actually want to leave those fossil fuels in the ground, which then leads you to the next question of, okay, well, if we're going to leave it in the ground, what does the world look like if we do that? And how do we get to that vision of the world that we want to see rather than the vision of the world we're we're locked into? Which, by the way, is a pretty scary thought for people, this idea of removing the social license or changing norms in this way. Mm -hmm. Because you have to realize that for decades and decades and decades, we collectively as a country and as a world supported the use of fossil fuels, right? It was that, it was the long road trip and it was the freedom of the open road and the automobile and it was all the good things and suburbia and all the good things that came with it. And we did in fact benefit massively from it and encouraged it. Um, So I personally think it's okay to recognize, yeah, no, we thought it was good at the time. Now we know better and now we're going to change. That doesn't denigrate what people did to say that, we know better and we have to change. That's right. And I think, you know, often, you know, a lot of young people, they're really fed up with the fossil fuel industry. And so often a lot of the discourse in the fossil fuel divestment movement is going to make it sound like we think fossil fuels have no use whatsoever, right? But there is this recognition that fossil fuels have played a really important role in the past in helping us create a better standard of living and so on. The question is, now that we can have really feasible alternatives, um, we fossil fuels can I mean, they're not going to end overnight, but we can gradually ramp down the importance that they play. We can recognize how vital they've been, but that they also have some really terrible side effects um, that we can't afford to continue to invest in. And it's not only climate change. We know when we think about the effects of fossil fuels, it's also about 
impacts on people's health. When we think about direct impacts on people's health, especially is often when we think about environmental justice issues, it's a lot of the time people of color, minorities, that are getting impacted heavily by local air pollution, um, but also pollution of water because fossil fuels use a lot of water in their production and their use mm-hmm. and their burning. Um, and there's also a question in the long term that fossil fuels are actually going to cost a lot more than the clean energy alternatives. So if we make that transition, we can save, the International Energy Agency, for instance, said we could save $71 trillion globally by switching to clean energy in line with those two-degree targets. And so there's all these good reasons why we should be making these transitions. There's the climate change reason, there's the health reason, there's the economic reasons. They're all there. They're lining up, and we just need to act on them. Right. So fossil fuel divestment becomes a a way for people to say what side of that divide they're on. Yeah. Right. Sticking to the old future or picking a new future. And in some ways, it's, you know, that's the other objection. It's only a symbolic act. Right. What's your response to that? Yeah. So I think on one hand, it is an important symbolic act, but it's not only a symbolic act. Um, So on one hand, I think we need to recognize the importance of symbols because as we've seen, you know, with the with the smoking divestment, for instance, those symbols were really important because they they were a way that we as society could begin to shift the way that we perceive certain things. And that allowed us to create spaces where we could then move smoking into out of our conference rooms, right? And the same thing with apartheid. You know, a lot of the divestment movement from apartheid um, was symbolic, right? Um, we weren't necessarily harming the companies that were operating in South Africa that much. Um, but at the same time, what we were able to do is we were able to shift the U.S. administration. For instance, they were calling the South African anti-apartheid activists terrorists at the, t- at the time that a lot of these things started. And we moved from that space to now we're calling them freedom fighters, right? And that shift of norms, those symbolic moral statements that help us to realign the way that we see the world, are really, really important. So those symbols, yeah, it's just a symbolic gesture in some sense. But on the other hand, it's really important. And at the same time, I think a lot of divestment activists, uh, they say it's only symbolic, but actually there's more than that. You know, where we put our money and the way that we invest can help us create a better world. And there's evidence from the likes of HSBC Bank that says that divestment actually can have a tangible impact. You know, cumulatively, the more we divest, the more we remove from the fossil fuel industry, means there's less demand for their stocks, less demand for their equity. It becomes harder for them to um, gain capital and to get financing for their projects, right? And that could actually affect a lot of their production in the long term, especially once you begin to shift the the norms on the financial markets as well, because people start to look at this and it starts to become less of an attractive investment because we start to see some of the conflicts going on. The one thing investors don't like is uncertainty. And so we're putting a lot of uncertainty about the future of fossil fuels into the space. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of major sources of uncertainty for fossil fuels. So for those that are currently invested in it, there's actually good financial reasons to be nervous. One is that the world might regulate it, but something that might happen before then is that it might become uneconomic. It seems like there's a perfect storm going on now when we think about the risk to the fossil fuel industry. You know, we do have climate regulation, but as you say, the economics of clean energy and alternatives they're changing at a rapid pace. I mean, I, this is one of the things that gets me excited. Um, I mean, there's a few things that get me excited. Watching the students rise up and the sort of power that is developing around this issue, that's a big risk to the fossil fuel industry, right? Um, and then you look at the changing economics that are happening at the same time, and solar and wind are dropping at such incredible rates, and electric vehicles, the battery prices are dropping incredibly fast too. The scale of innovation is really remarkable. 
And this is another front that the fossil fuel industry likes to put out misinformation on because they started with the science misinformation and they've they've done really well in spreading that for many years, right? But they're losing that battle now. I mean, it's hard to stay a climate denier um, at the moment. Although in the US, there's a few more people than in the rest of the world. Um, but the next front of misinformation with them is economic misinf- misinformation, right? To try to deny that actually the alternatives are better and try to prevent the adoption of those alternatives, even though to a large extent wind is already cost competitive, solar is increasingly cost competitive and is set to be cost competitive across about 80% of the world by 2017, right? And so we're starting to see this perfect storm um, that's trying to push back against the fossil fuel industry in May, reduce their demand and make their investments less uh, valuable. And so that's a really worrying question for people who just day invested in the fossil fuel industry. So if there's a perfect storm of economics and a strong moral case, why aren't more institutions divesting immediately? What's your best speculation on that, Alex? You know, I think we often are very comfortable in the status quo. We're often comfortable just doing what we've done, and we don't think things are going to change. I mean, if you look back like, you know, 15 years ago, and you ask people, would the internet and mobile technologies be where it is now? I don't think anybody would have been able to tell you that this would be where the world is, right? Um, or that, you know, a lot of the changes in society around, like, let's say, gay marriage, would that have happened? You know, I, I think a lot of people can't see the world changing as fast as it sometimes as, does. As an old man, I get to tell my kids about things like film right. and <laughs> <laughs> Polaroids and yeah. things that, yeah, it used to be, right? And I don't think people could have predicted, you know, how quickly industries can move and how quickly things mm-hmm. can change. I think that's part of it, kind of a an attachment to the status quo. I think there's also a territoriality that goes on, Mm -hmm. as best I can feel, which is, I think when a bunch of students come to a university board of directors and say, you should invest your money this way, there's a little bit of, hey, that's our job, Mm -hmm. we know how to do it, and don't tell us how to do our jobs. Yeah, um, and it's not only a feeling, it's there's evidence there that that (laughs) happens a few times. And, you know, I've been in a few divestment campaigns and uh, sometimes, you know, you're going up against like these big financial consultants and they're like, who are you to tell us like that there's a carbon bubble that we don't understand? Or who are you to say that like we should be running our investments in these ways? And what's interesting is uh, a lot of the time they stick to these conservative estimates about the way that climate change will play out. And they buy into a lot of the fossil fuel industry's rhetoric about the future. And so they'll rely on projections from Exxon and so on. But if people had divested when students initially told them to, they probably would have made a bit of money. Right. They would have uh, saved quite a bit for, their, for yeah. the institutions they were representing, which is always kind of funny because at the bottom of every uh, financial statement, you know, mm-hmm. I'm old enough to get some of those, right. it says uh, past performance is no indication of future returns. Yeah. Right. So that's a caveat they put on every financial statement. But mm-hmm. they, they are anchored in the past oftentimes right. as to how money will be made and how it will be made in the future. I think that a part of it is territoriality. Mm-hmm. Um, and to level the status quo. I think a part of it is also, and it was interesting in our little exchange when I talked about how as a society we had always supported fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. I think I was kind of revealing a little bit of the older person's reaction as opposed to Mm -hmm. the anger of younger people of like, why are we even in this situation? And I think that's the other thing you have to get over is is people's personal burden. Like a lot of people have, you know, carbon guilt about where we are and Mm -hmm. they'd rather not confront that yet. Yeah. That was almost philosophical, Alex. That's right. And I think there is this question about us being uh, complicit in these structures, right? And I think we've got to think about maybe not necessarily a sense of guilt, but there's a, a recognition of where we are as a society and that we're part of the structure. 
But at the same time, what we can do is recognize that we're part of it and we're reliant on it, but that we can still push for a change to those very structures. We can we can of. move to penance and redemption. That's then, right. Yeah. Out of guilt. So, why the Gates Foundation? Why should the Gates Foundation divest? You know, there's a there's a number of different answers to that. One is because of their own values as a foundation, right? They're committed, you know, their aim is to ensure that everybody has the ability to live a decent and healthy life, right? And if we think about what is the, the most important ways that we can assure that moving to the future, it is to tackle climate change and is to ensure that we do not go down the path that the fossil fuel industry's business model suggests we're going down, right? So to invest in that it seems to go contrary to many of the values that the Gates Foundation was founded upon. Um, so that internally for them should ring alarm bells. As far as the broader movement's concerned, the Gates Foundation is really important because it's very, very influential. And when we're talking about creating a new story, a new narrative, when we're talking about influencing norms, um, that's where the Gates Foundation has a lot of its power because people pay attention to what Gates does, not only because he has a lot of money, but because he has a lot of influence too. Um, and so if the Gates Foundation begins to move on this, it can really help to shift that narrative. It can really help us to begin to see that a better world is possible. Um, and the problem is that Gates, the way that he's been talking about this, he makes it seem as if it isn't. Right? So we, if you listen to some of the things he's been saying, he says like um, the technological cost of making the clean energy um, transition are astronomical. That's the quote, astronomical. Um, and that, I don't know where he's getting his, his information on this, but he's really creating this narrative that problematizes the clean energy transition and which is keeping us locked into that status quo. And so I think it's important, given the influence that he has as one of the world's most influential men, that we don't allow him to, maybe allow is a strong word, but that we try we and help him help him reach a different conclusion. Yes, that's the one. That's right. So there we, we go. We provide some information in ways that we, in a number of ways to help him realize that he can play a much more of a facilitative role in helping us shift towards a better future. Well, right? I can only imagine the effect it would have if, you know, one of the most influential people in the world, one of the most well-known people in the world, who has dedicated himself to making the world a better place yeah. at this stage of his life, if he were to get behind that shift and say we had a different future and fossil fuel divestment was part of it, I believe it would have immense effects on the international debate. It would influence other major actors. It would create a climate, help create the climate by which we could get better laws, and frankly, as a Seattleite, it would make me immensely proud to have that type of leadership in our city. So I'm rooting for, for Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation to do the right thing. Yeah. So you picked a song to finish the show with. That's what we always do, a song that matters to you. Mm -hmm. So what song did you pick, and uh, why'd you pick it? Yeah, so I chose a song. It's Building by a group called Black Sunshine. Um, and I chose it for a number of different reasons. One of the reasons is that it uh, kind of connects me back home into the U.S. So it's sung by a bunch of singers whose origins are in Southern Africa, but also are Brooklyn-based as well. Um, and so there's sort of this multicultural connection. But it's also, it's about, uh, it's, the song's name is Building, and it's about building power. And it's about the recognition that we, we need to build power across the globe in order to push towards a better future, right? Um, and a lot of that future is based in, and they, they speak a lot about love. Um, and I think we do love, the reason why a lot of climate activists do what they do is because they care deeply, right? Um, and so that, that was part of it. But there was this, also it talks about the need to build across spaces and building people power is what the divestment movement is doing, right? It's building p power across 
I mean, when we look at the rate that the diverse movement has grown, it's one of the fastest growing movements of its kind in history, right? And so what we're seeing is people building power together and connecting across the world and connecting the dots what's one of the most important issues in our time. So it's really inspiring to see that. So I thought I would choose the song because it's really about building that power. It's about bringing people together and it's about making sure that we're working together on the thing that really binds us together in such an important way. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. Been waiting all my life for disciple, disciple singing songs of faith.